You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I will give you all my worship. I will give you This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode 8 The Heart of Bethel. On this final episode this season, what's truly at the heart of Bill Johnson's California megachurch? And is it a cult? I'll share my own conclusions. And in general, I am not going to pussyfoot around my feelings because I hope that up until now that I've created a space and allowed the time for you to form or maybe solidify your opinion about Bethel Church in Redding, California. All right, let's get into this. I 100% started this journey. Not even neutral, I would say I started it with the feeling that this was going to be pretty easy to tie up at the end with a pretty little bow. Because I believed then, and I still believe now, that Bethel is a place where real healing takes place. Emotional, for sure. Physical, maybe. It's also a place where there is a lot of joy, a lot of singing and dancing and friendship and community and meditation. But it's also a place that has raised some really serious red flags for me. And just so that we're all on the same page with where I'm coming from, over the past few months, more and more people have been popping into my DMs to tell me about their connection to Bethel And far too many of these stories, most of them from completely credible people, were about how Bethel had torn their family apart or treated them so poorly in some kind of way, especially when it comes to anything LGBTQ. I also heard from a lot of former BSSM students who feel kind of taken advantage of. Some of them even feel brainwashed. I don't know why I felt the need to sort of like this all out at you right off the bat, but that's just the kind of episode this is. And I wanted you to know that my conclusions aren't just based on what was heard this past season. It's also from the stories I've heard off the record. And for that matter, all the events that I didn't even get to, like the day gold dust fell from the sanctuary ceiling. All right. Thanks so much to all my guests this season. There is, however, a small handful that I want to check in with one final time, starting with Grace. We caught up over the Christmas holidays, 2020, after she just completed her first term at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And it's been really, really great, Um, really painful. It's like a pruning process, you know, cutting off things and surrendering things that you've been holding on to that have been hurting you. But yeah, I definitely recommend it to anyone who wants to um, develop closer intimacy with God because it definitely will stretch you. It has been stretching me a lot and kind of like confronting you with um, things that maybe you haven't wanted to address. The last time I spoke to Grace, BSSM was still dealing with that COVID-19 outbreak. She was isolated from her classmates because, remember, she lived alone. And she'd recently made that decision to go off her medications meds she was taking for depression. It's been maybe two months now since I've been off of it. And I expected to be like 
plummeted into like a dark pit, you know, from, from being off of it, but I pretty much stayed exactly the same. Um, and I didn't really have any really, uh, negative or adverse effects, which was amazing. And then after this past Saturday, uh, I've just been like feeling just really, really light, um, and buoyant. And this morning, even though it's like pouring down rain and really foggy and kind of a gross day, I just kind of woke up just feeling like just so joyful about, um, you know, who God is and everything. So it's been like an interesting journey. Grace has mentioned to me several times now about all the prophetic words she's been receiving about the word joy. And it's been frustrating because I have struggled with like depression most of my life. And so when people kept giving me that word, I would get frustrated and be like, no, I'm not a carrier of joy. You're getting the wrong word, <laughs> you know? And uh, anyway, so they started praying for me to, to receive the joy and Former insiders have told me this is exactly what BSSM students are taught to do. If you sense sadness in someone, prophesy the opposite. If you're attempting to prophesy over someone like Grace, who could be depressed, maybe even you know for certain she's depressed, it might sound like, I speak over you, that you're full of joy, filled with God's joy, releasing God's joy everywhere you go, all over you. Thank you, Jesus. And that could definitely get annoying, right? If you're not feeling it and people keep saying this kind of stuff to you, maybe not for all of us, but definitely for Grace. And what's cool about Grace is that she continued to document all her feelings about this stuff on her YouTube channel. The old Grace is dead. I was riding my bike um, and just kind of talking out loud to God and saying like, God, like what? like, what is going on with me? Like, I don't understand like what my problem is. Like, why do I keep feeling like frustrated and annoyed and irritated and like, honestly, just like triggered and offended with like my revival group and like, not just specifically my revival group, but like some of the way that Bethel's culture is that just is different from mine. And like this whole year since I got here, like at BSSM, like I've been trying to like manage my feelings and be like, okay, Grace, you're going to will feelings of like acceptance and peace and open-mindedness and like not being annoyed. Right. And I'm just like, I was getting annoyed with how annoyed I was. (laughs) And I was like, okay, God, like, what is it? After most of her first year feeling frustrated, annoyed, and triggered, Grace says that on this bike ride, God spoke to her and told her that this isn't about people. This is a spiritual battle. She says God told her it's the devil making her feel this way. Oh my gosh, like why couldn't I have had this revelation like back in September when school was starting, right? Because like literally this whole year I've been like frustrating myself with how frustrated I've been, right? And like the Lord kind of just laughed with me and I was like, man, this like, this is, this is like life-changing, right? It was like as if the light switch like went off in my brain and like it, the, the truth came on and lit up the room. And I was like, oh, like, wow, like, duh. Grace doesn't know if she'll complete all three years of the program or not. And she might not shake and fall and unwittingly or not make a spectacle of herself during worship like many of her fellow students do but she says she is still palpably experiencing the presence of God at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. I still definitely have a lot of questions. Um, I don't feel that I'm as uncomfortable as I was. Uh, I've gotten used to it a lot more and getting to know the people. Um, You know, because in the beginning, I didn't know anyone. So when you see someone you don't know doing something you don't understand, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But when you get to know people as people and individual and you see the fruit in their lives and you see like how they've actually changed and actually see their story, um, you can kind of understand a little bit better of what's going on. Um, and it's not as scary or as uncomfortable. I want to ask you, um, you know, to give some, uh, what you would say if there's somebody listening that is themselves thinking about attending BSSM in the future, having one term under your belt, what would you want to tell them about their potential future school? Wow. Um, I would say buckle up and prepare for an emotional roller coaster, <laughs> but in a good way. Um, you're going to get out of it what you put in um, for sure. It, it can it can be very easy to just kind of like 
you know, do the homework and just kind of mentally check out and not really get anything out of it. But if you really press in um, and do the hard, do the hard things and ask yourself the difficult questions, like it'll really reveal a lot of stuff in you um, and just purge out, you know, all the lies that are keeping you um, from living um, free. Um, one of the, the main things I focus on here is over anything else, even over the supernatural is learning your identity. Because if they, you know, if they focus on the supernatural before focusing on your identity, that's a recipe for disaster. So focusing on who you are in Christ, what, you know, what it means to be a child of God, like what the cross actually did for you, what it really means to be set free from sin, to be pure and righteous now. This brings me to my first major criticism of Bethel. It's about its people, some of its people, not Grace. She's a total sweetheart, clearly, but a lot of others, especially the leaders. It's that this focus on spiritual identity and being a royal child of God in his kingdom, it has infused them with a very inflated sense of self, sometimes to the point of arrogance. And along with that, a lack of humility, which is gobsmacking considering how much they talk about being humble. A perfect example of this is Sean Foyt and his Let Us Worship tour. He's bopping around the country during the pandemic, flying in the face of science, and showcasing an absolute and complete lack of common courtesy, all in the name of Jesus? At this point, there's no end in sight for the Let Us Worship Tour. It's a total force. The church has left the building. <laughs> We're on the streets. Maybe we need to get, we needed to get out from all our production and all our cool buildings. Maybe we needed to get outside. Maybe we needed to get raw again. Maybe we need to remember who we are again. Every few days, it seems like the tour's in a new city and Foyt's online flaunting all the fines he's being issued. A live album he released went number one on iTunes, and there's a constant and even increasing flow of miracle healing claims, brain tumors disappearing, epilepsy healed, and most recently in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a man in a wheelchair, clearly with significant body paralysis, with a fair bit of help, got out of his wheelchair and took a few steps. They even brought him up on stage. Now, I don't know this man's backstory or medical history, but I've seen viral videos just like this. Scenes completely outside the realm of the church, like a physiotherapy room where a paraplegic patient takes her first steps, or a wedding reception when the normally, you know, wheelchair-bound groom with the help of his best man will rise to his feet for a moving first dance with his new wife. This stuff happens, and it's beautiful but it's not a miracle. I don't personally see what happened in Chattanooga to be anything but the strength of the human spirit on full display. It's only being perceived slash presented as something supernatural. Now, I couldn't wrap up this season without telling you about what seems to be Foyt's biggest let us worship kerfuffle. It's all surrounding his planned New Year's Eve stop in Los Angeles. Specifically, 312 Azusa Street, downtown Los Angeles. Three twelve Azusa Street is the site of one of the most famous revivals in all revival history, the Azusa Street Revival. It began on April 9th, 1906, and continued for roughly nine years. And it was led by an African-American preacher named William J. Seymour. I actually came across this old newspaper article that described Azusa as a, quote, disgraceful intermingling of the races. And the strange behavior that went on inside what was once a barn-like building, it says, they described it as hysterical. 
There was crying, howling, jumping, shaking, spinning. But today, this historic location is just a few short blocks from LA's Skid Row, one of the most vulnerable communities in the entire country. Skid Row covers about 50 city blocks and has a homeless population of at least 2,500 people, many of whom suffer from serious mental health and addiction issues. And it's here, on the site of Azusa, in what's now the epicenter of LA's addiction crisis, where Sean Foyt planned to ring in the new year with his growing caravan of followers and anyone else who was led to join them. But fairly last minute, from what I can tell, the event location was switched to a new one further out of town. I wasn't registered for the event, so it was kind of hard to follow all the changes from up here in Vancouver, but it appeared like there was a lot of drama and pivoting going on. It's possible that this was due to a lack of permits, although that's never stopped Foyt before. It could have also been in reaction to the significant outcry against his main event, as well as the two days of Skid Row street outreach that he planned prior to New Year's Eve. On night one, homeless advocates, many of them Christian homeless advocates, created a vehicle blockade and made a ton of noise. That's Pastor Q from the Church Without Walls, a former Virgin Records rapper turned evangelist and Skid Row activist. So we want to make sure he does not bring his virus here. Can I get a right off? Off your horn if you hear it. Shut him down. Can we hear the image? We're going to pray with the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King tonight. Can I get it right off? We know Sean Foyt's folks are here. So we want them to be loud and clear. Yes, sir. That if they got on masks and they're going to keep the mask on, they're welcome. Okay, well, you got to let me know before you walk it off. But if they're not going to be masked up, they got to go. That's right. To Pastor Q, Rocking up to Skid Row like this, many with no masks, others with masks pulled down under their noses or chins, their masks hanging off their ears. This was a form of biological warfare. And according to reports, Foyt himself never even showed up. The people he invited did, though. So did a worship band. They prayed for people on the sidewalks, sang and worshipped. And even though, again, it doesn't look like he was even there, Foyt did post online that his team was assaulted with smoke bombs and pepper spray. He says they were even given death threats. I have received a few threats making this podcast. Empty threats, really, that pop into my inbox from time to time. Usually stuff about how God's spies would be working to somehow stop me from trying to dig up all this dirt about the church. You know, like the church in general. But most recently, I received a warning a warning about the potential dangers of looking into Bethel. I mentioned this to Snowflake Calvert when we caught up for a final chat. Physical safety, I, in my experience, I've never heard of anybody being physically harmed. Um, 
out of retaliation from anything from Bethel. Like I said, at least in my experience, they would just tell people they weren't allowed on the property. And if they came back, they were trespassing. Basically, I received this off-putting anonymous message from someone claiming to be a concerned listener, warning me to be careful of my personal safety and that from their own experience, I should consider the risks of digging into Bethel akin to that of someone who's investigating Scientology, which, if you're not familiar, is an alleged cult accused of using its power to try and silence anyone who defects or speaks out against it. Um, I've never seen or heard of anybody being physically hurt by someone on staff, um, at least not in, in a job capacity, maybe in their personal life, who knows. But I will say that even telling my mom that I was going to be doing this interview... Uh, she was concerned and she, you know, double checked that I wouldn't use any names or got too specific with certain job descriptions um, because they will sue. Um, I know that from the time that I mentioned earlier about me being outed um, by a friend that it got to the point where it was like, it, if we went any further, there would be legal actions on my part and their part for slander and def- uh, defamation of character. Snowflake's story of how difficult and complicated it was to leave Bethel is not an isolated incident. Um, I had a friend that uh, we were close in age, and as a teenager, she ran away because she realized that she was in a cult-like bubble and wanted to get out. And she ran away, and they found her and basically convinced her to stay and then exploited her story um, to discourage anybody else from running away. Um, And so that was kind of cracks on how they handled certain people because anybody questioning anything was, you know, excommunicated in a lot of ways. They were banned from the property for doing things that in any normal circumstance or any other organization wouldn't happen. During the last few months, I've heard story upon story of people whose lives were caught up in a whirlwind of drama and trauma surrounding their decision to walk away. And many of the people I've been speaking with were, like Snowflake, intimately involved with Bethel from a young age. It was interesting. Like there was a lot, there were some pastors, kids, kids of different leaders or kids that were like basically born and raised at Bethel um, and made some really good friends, some of which I'm still friends with now. And during that time in high school... Once again, her timeline at the church from the very beginning to realizing she was never going back was age 16 to 24 years old. So from 2002 to about 2009. And during that time, she assisted a lot of the senior children's ministry leaders and then eventually taught the curriculum on her own. We, meaning the entire team, uh, helped to develop this curriculum to basically indoctrinate children into this revival, supernatural signs and wonders, um, you know, fake reality. And basically, we were teaching kids, we didn't use this terminology, but we were teaching kids how to be clairvoyant, psychic, um, use divination, uh, teach them that they could, you know, heal anybody, raise the dead. Um, uh, The list goes on and on. And uh, definitely something that I regret. But um, yeah, at the time, I believed in it. Our job was to take anything that was being taught in the adult church and then breaking it down um, and using object lessons to teach the kids the same lessons that their parents were getting. So then the whole family is getting indoctrinated into this, um, what they refer to as a revival culture. A moment ago, Snowflake mentioned one of the hottest Bethel buzzwords, culture. On their website, it says, our culture is characterized by worship, the presence of God, family, revival, miracles and healings, and a culture of honor. I just realized after all these months of looking at that, I still don't actually know what that is. 
Once again, Reading reporter and former member Annalise Pierce. And this culture of honor essentially says when somebody does things, we like to look at their best qualities and not their worst qualities. So if a leader in the church has made a mistake, culture of honor says, yes, we don't agree with that thing they did, but overall, we honor them anyway. Annalise says Bill Johnson has taught this, especially in regards to previous religious leaders throughout history, many of whom were forced to end their ministries because of moral failings. And so he'll say, yes, you know, it is true that this or that was done by that leader, but we're going to look at what they did well and not look at all the things they did badly. Again, there can be some beauty in this, the idea of believing the best, hoping the best. But at the same time, it's also an atmosphere that can lead to real problems, fraud. (laughs) The Bethel congregation has actually been victims of serious fraud at least twice. Once in 2009, one of their own, David Souza, was sentenced to 18 years in prison for a con worth nearly a million dollars. His investment pitch reportedly used the tagline, where business is moral and the miraculous routine. Even more shocking is a $35 million Ponzi scheme that came to a head while I've been looking into Bethel. This was back in November 2020. Allegedly responsible is this guy named Matthew Piercy, a regular Bethel attendee. He was getting people to invest in his companies and he was paying off the first investors with money from later investors to keep the whole thing going longer. Eventually, the FBI came for Piercy, and things got so super weird and honestly kind of hilarious that I watched the whole story make not only local headlines, but eventually international headlines too. This report from CBS Sacramento. It's like something out of a James Bond movie, an unusual attempt to escape federal agents. A suspect jumping into Lake Shasta and using an underwater scooter to stay out of sight for 30 minutes before the frigid water forced him to give up. What a story. CBS 13, Steve Lord. The story goes that when the FBI turned up at Piercy's home to arrest him, he hopped in his truck, raced to Lake Shasta, where he took an underwater scooter out of the back of his truck and disappeared into the water. Well, he sort of disappeared. The U.S. Attorney's Office filed court documents reading Matthew Piercy was out of sight underwater where law enforcement could only see bubbles. He emerged from the frigid waters after 25 minutes and was taken into custody. To date, Piercy has been indicted on charges of wire fraud, mail fraud, money laundering, and witness tampering. The witness tampering allegedly happened after he heard about the FBI probe into his company, Family Wealth Legacy. And then he told his Bethel investors not to cooperate. This is probably one of the most distressing things to me about having been part of this church and that now observing from the outside what's going on at this church. There are some really great things that the church teaches that are very easily manipulated by somebody who doesn't have good intentions. One of them is a huge focus on generosity. At Bethel, they call it radical generosity. And it's this idea that we should all be giving freely and generously to each other. And while it's still unclear to me, even at this point, just how generous Bethel is itself, and I say that because a lot of their donations and charitable work seem to be self-serving. I also don't know how generous the senior leadership are themselves with their own money, but where you can really see this radical generosity put into practice is by members and attendees themselves. Annalise describes it as an open and free-handed sharing of money. If somebody needs something in BSSM, the revival pastor will say, I have somebody in my group who is about to, to become homeless because they can't pay their rent for October. I would like people to contribute if you feel led by God. And that person will receive a a donation from random members of BSSM that may total thousands of dollars easily, eight to $10,000, and just given away in five to $10 increments by members of the church. There's this radical generosity, which is beautiful, but can also be easily manipulated. 
there's definitely a large camp of critics that view this as hypocritical to the max. That Bethel leaders place such emphasis on generosity, radical generosity, but at the same time live themselves in such abundance. Here's Snowflake again. And people don't realize is that most of the senior leadership team came out of poverty from a smaller town in Weaverville. And I wouldn't say that everybody in Weaverville is in poverty, but these specific families were. And um, I watched how they turned this church into a money-making business. And it was intentional. I wouldn't even say that it was by accident. It was intentional. And they started bringing in different Christian business leaders and entrepreneurs to help them build this business so that it was more about them making money. And they would pose it in the way that they say it is about, you know, it's okay to... um, be a Christian and live in abundance. It's okay to be a Christian and be very wealthy. Um, But I don't believe that that's healthy, especially when you're making money off of free volunteer labor and mostly off of these interns from the School of Ministry. And this labor? It's not strictly business or ministry-related things either. It's cleaning their houses for them. It's doing their grocery shopping for them. It's mowing their lawn and doing the landscaping. It's taking care of their kids all for free. And because, you know, Bethel is a 501c3, it's tax-free. So these people are making some good money. So, having come away from all this, what does Snowflake believe is at the heart of Bethel? What does she think is really going on up there in Redding, California. This is a new age Christian cult. Um, And I have no problem with anybody who's new age or neo-pagan or a witch or anything like that or psychics or mediums. Like I am no qualms about that. Um, But for people who are thinking that this is Christianity or a, a more authentic version of Christianity, that's not true. This is, it's new age and it's witchcraft and, um, you know, people are being clairvoyant. People are practicing divination. People are using astral projection um, and they don't use those words, right? They don't say astral projection. They say things like spirit traveling or my uh, the funniest one is sanctified imagination. And, but it's, it's astral projection. And so, um, and instead of saying like spirit guide, you just say Jesus is your source. And so this is not Christianity at all. Don't stop yet. Don't stop yet. Heaven Bent returns right after this quick message. For this final episode, I've also caught up one last time with BSSM grad turned staunch Bethel critic, Robert Vujasinovich, who at one point was so bold in his faith that he could confidently knock on a stranger's door and offer to heal someone with the laying on of his own hands. What happens is in your first year, they assign you to a neighborhood in the city. And it's kind of like once a week, this is your neighborhood that you're going to go to and you're going to do like basically evangelism, but it's not about getting people saved. It's just about like showing that God is good to them. So like whether that's like a a healing or just like an encouraging word or sometimes an act of service, but really the acts of service weren't weren't that common. That's kind of like when I first started, that's what I was kind of centered on. I was like, if we could just do something nice for these people that need something nice done, like I think that's as beneficial as like a healing. Um, So I would constantly just like, if there was a dirty yard, I would just ask them if we could clean it for them or take some yard waste out or do do more like practical things. Because in the beginning, I wasn't um, fully in, on board with everything. You know what I mean? Not at first. But over time, Robert says he came to really enjoy going out in the community like that. I did because I like talking to people. Like I'm pretty friendly. So I like just talking to people. But everybody was always looking and there was no way they weren't. Like, this is probably like something that it, when people from who are, my friends who are still at Bethel, when they hear me saying this, they'll disagree vehemently, but there's no way to deny it. They're looking for notches. In Robert's experience, 
one of the biggest problems at Bethel, BSSM specifically, is its big emphasis on testimonies, meaning there is potentially great favor and positive attention to be had if you're the one with a story. And a lot of the students, that's what they were after. There's no other reason for them to spend all their days and all their nights just approaching people in the public, hoping to get a healing story or something like that. You know, it's what got us really excited at the school. We would just have like hours sometimes on certain days where we would just talk about what we saw in public. So if you have a testimony, it's great. It excites everybody, it builds faith. It gets everybody on board and gets everybody pumped to go do what you just did. I remember in my second year, I was actually a leader in a neighborhood in Reading and I had a first year student with me. And we walked by this house and he said, I think there's someone in there that needs to be healed. And I said, okay, well, let's knock on the door and see who's in there. We knock on the door and this guy opens the door and his wife is on a bed that's in the living room. And this first year student says, oh, is there something wrong with her? Could we pray for her? And he's like, no, leave her alone. I don't want you people praying for us, right? And I said, okay, well, thank you. And then we left. And that's all that happened. Um, But when I got back to school the next day, I was brought into a meeting with some of the pastors. And the story was told to them that we went in she had no kneecaps because they were removed during surgery and we prayed for her and she got kneecaps in her knees and she started walking. And that was the story given. And then that was the story that was repeated on a Sunday. Even though I had told them in the meeting, that's not what happened. And there's several things like that that have happened because again, uh, like, like what I said before, it gets away from them and they're, they're at a point where they can't pull it back. So once that testimony is told and it's believed and then it's repeated, you've already now told the story three times to people, a lot of people at a church service. You know, there could be like 3,000 people there. So what are you going to do? You can't, you're not going to say that that wasn't true. There's got to be some kind of accountability though. I mean, even if it was just one-on-one, did you ever say anything to the person who you had knocked on that door with and talked about how this story had unraveled? Yeah, I mean, at the time I told them, you don't have to make up stories. There's stories every week, you know, that people have. So don't make it up, you know, be sincere. But again, like, who am I? I'm just another student. I was really leaning into Robert about this story. Why not make a total scene at the time about this being a complete fib? How could you just sit there on a Sunday and listen to this happen? But after talking about it some more, I kind of get it now. It's kind of like if you have something negative to say at Bethel, about Bethel, even if it's based in truth and fact, it's kind of looked down on as unbelief. And unbelief is like a pretty dangerous thing, doubt and unbelief in most church circles anyway, but especially in, at Bethel. It's unbelief is kind of like, Bill Johnson would always tell a story about when Jesus went to, um, a t- I think it was his hometown to perform some miracles. And he said there was so much unbelief there that he couldn't really heal a lot of people. And he says, yeah, unbelief stops God and it, you know, God can't move past it. You know, he just kind of like, goes to another direction. So it was kind of always looked as you don't want to have unbelief. If you have unbelief, you know, you're in God's way, basically. So it was kind of something that was always ingrained in us to never have. You just kind of like always stay positive and always believe. This would have been the perfect spot to hear from someone on the other side of Robert's story. I even had this fantasy as I've been creating season two that maybe Just maybe I'd land an interview with someone in senior leadership. But my requests were all in vain. And I actually feel kind of, like, silly about it now for thinking that that was even a possibility. But the fantasy was that, in this final episode, maybe I'd hop on Zoom with Bill Johnson, Papa Bill. Maybe we'd have a heart-to-heart about how he grew his church into one of the biggest and wealthiest churches in America. Maybe he'd even find himself opening up and talking candidly to me about the mistakes they've made along the way and how they are working to do better 
I would have asked him about kingdom culture and what he sees in Bethel's future. If you can imagine a fire beginning with this bottom row and as it continues to move through the months and the, the weeks, the months, and even the years, you notice that fire begins to burn. And what happens is it burns higher and higher into the upper echelons of society until when a reformation hits is when that revival fire actually starts to impact those who have been put in position by God to shape culture. And so if you can picture this fire just burning up this wall until it starts hitting different levels of society, pretty soon business people are impacted at a higher level and pretty soon eventually it's the CEOs and it's the actors and the actresses and it's the athletes and it's the politicians and eventually you get the people who have been put in position, remember, they are in their lane by God's design to actually influence culture, how pe what people value and how people think. When a revival has worked its way through a culture until it impacts those people, they start making decisions based on kingdom values and culture itself starts getting reformed. Oversimplification, but you get the point. Since I started looking into Bethel, some big changes have taken place within senior leadership. In late November, 2020, Bill Johnson's eldest son, Eric Johnson, and his wife, Candace, made a massive announcement. They were stepping down from their role as senior pastors of the church. Bill and his wife, Benny, are the senior leaders. But their children have helped run and grow the church their entire adult lives. Um, so I heard about this, and it was kind of a big deal. I, was, I actually was in bed and woke up in the morning, and I got some texts from people. Cause there's like kind of like a, a good amount, like probably I'd say 60 to 80 people that are all ex Bethel students. And we all like talk to each other. Um, and I just got a bunch of texts from people that were like, have you seen this? And I was like, wow. According to my sources, Eric and Candace are very well respected in the community. They're seen as quiet and not as outspoken or quote unquote crazy as some of the other leadership. Eric and Candace are both very like, I, I don't want to use the term progressive because I don't think they are, but they're more, I guess, empathetic than their parents, um, than the Johnsons. I, I think they do still have some views about like pro-life stuff, you know? Um, but for the most part, you know, they support kind of, the the rights of people who could be marginalized, you know, and they're very empathetic. Like I've I've personally seen like Eric and Candace like cry over things that I felt like were very sincere and that had no spiritual basis at all. They were just social issues. What's added to the rumor mill here is that when they, Eric and Candace, stepped down, they really didn't give any reason for it only that it's time for something new. Nobody saw it coming. Um, nobody really knew what the reason actually was, but it kind of felt like there's some things going on behind the scenes and it kind of came to a head and then this is what they do. At the moment, it's unclear who's taking over, but some people online seem to think that this change in leadership is a sign that Bethel, the behemoth, is starting to crumble. Here's Robert's gut reaction to that. No, I don't think so. They have they have said and done things that I have thought were like the most ridiculous and the most offensive. And I thought for sure their people are gonna be able to like look and see like, okay, we're with you most of the time, but this is crazy. But then I'll see like the comments and it's just, I mean, you could scroll for about a half hour without seeing one critical comment. There are tons of people behind them and that it's kind of scary. It seems like whatever they say, their base will go with. One of the most concerning things that the base just goes with, that Bethel seems to encourage pretty consistently, is this whole separating people from their friends and family thing. And Robert is, again, just one example of many. 
And I was willing to sacrifice my friends, my family, which are very important to me now. And my family has since like told me about, you know, emails they got from different pastors or leaders from Bethel and from other churches who told them like, oh yeah, Rob, we know what's best for your son now. And you're not involved in his life anymore and blah, blah, blah. So were you really, aware of those emails? Um, my mom showed them to me recently. But at the time, did you know that they were contacting your parents? No. No, I had no idea. I just found this out like this year, literally. And I'm just going to come right out with it. That is garbage. Shouldn't a church have a reputation for teaching their people how to build up their important relationships? How to repair them? Give them the skills to maintain them in a healthy way? And I'm 100% confident that they do do that in many cases. But at the same time, from what I've been hearing... Bethel is directly and indirectly responsible for a whole graveyard of estranged relationships, family, and friends. Once you say that you're not a part of that community anymore, you will literally never speak to those people again. Not because you don't want to, because that's what's ingrained in them to do. He's not part of us anymore, so you just ghost them. And I mean, I had hundreds and hundreds of friends that I considered good friends that were a part of that church that literally like have blocked me on all social media just because I said, hey, I think we might have been in a cult. So, after all this, what do you think? Is Bill Johnson a cult leader? Is Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry a training ground for cult members? I truly hope, again, that I've created a space for you to come to your own conclusion. But for me, having mentally exhausted myself on the matter, I absolutely have to side with the victims here and say, if not a full-blown cult, Bethel is very culty. And so many people are suffering because of it. How can a church that is at its core good be leaving such a long trail of collateral damage in its wake? How can a people so bent on not living in fear tell one of their own, and this was just one of the stories, to disown their own mother because she's a witch? Their faith is harming people. But all that being said, and this is just the sort of person I am, I always want to see the best in people. And I've argued about this last point with so many people in my life for a while now, and they think I'm naive. I don't think anything purposefully nefarious is going on here. Maybe there is, I don't know. But at the heart, I think Bill Johnson is so sincere in what he believes. And I think he's leading a group of believers who are, unlike many other Christians, living and breathing what they believe unabashedly working to transform their community, their country, and the world into their vision of heaven on earth. I'm honestly waiting for something criminal to happen. Uh, That's the only thing I think that that would really, really stop um, the the movement of this thing. Um, And I think it's close. I mean, I think they're, I just think they do a really, really good job of covering themselves and uh, making sure that people stay quiet because there, I definitely think that there's criminal stuff going on. I think I would just ask them a question for them to reflect on, but just what are you doing? Like, this is not who you are. Like, remember those people that came from Weaverville? Like, you're not those people anymore. And what you're creating, this isn't Christianity, this isn't Jesus. This is a cult to make your family more money. What are you doing? I came to the church 10 years ago. And one of the very first things that I experienced was sitting in a sermon and hearing Bill Johnson say, we are not a political church. The political spirit is not something that we want to partner with. Now, 10 years later, so many people are asking, is this the same church? Is this, what what happened? What changed? Why is there more power and more money than ever rooted in Bethel Church? 
and yet the fruit is starting to look really mixed you know a community that has really mixed feelings about Bethel and then an extended international and national community that's starting to question a lot of the political statements by church leaders or or their beliefs about social issues and whether or not those things really match what many believers see Jesus saying in the Bible. And that really wasn't the message that people were coming to Bethel for. They were coming for signs and wonders. They were coming for ethereal worship experiences. They were coming to find jewels and to be healed. And politics was never supposed to be part of it. And, and it wasn't supposed to be really about power in the world. It was supposed to be power in the kingdom. Heaven Bent is created, written, and produced by me, Tara Jean Stevens. Sound mixing by Ryan Clark. My editorial producer is Annalisa Nielsen with help from Claire Brassard. Thank you, ladies. Thanks to Mary Jubran for her help with digital content. And my executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings from the Frequency Podcast Network. Heaven Bent would not be possible without the willingness of my guests to share such intimate stories from their life. Thank you all from the very bottom of my heart. And a special shout out to Reading reporter Annalise Pierce, founder of Shasta Scout, a news media group that covers Bethel and the city of Reading in general. Check it out at shastascout.org. And thank you. Why am I crying still? <laughs> I'm sorry, this has just been such an emotional journey. Oh, my Lord. And thank you for listening, subscribing, rating, and reviewing Heaven Bent on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, but that support goes a long way in helping me reach more people. And if this season has sparked something in you, it doesn't have to end here. I've launched Heaven Bent online. Look for Heaven Bent Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I'll be sharing bonus content, conversation starters, church news, and more. See you there. I want to see a stadium that we have to meet in because there are tens of thousands of people that want to gather to celebrate the good things that God has done. A course in history has been shaped by what, what happened here that will forever shape the course of history for nations. It has to happen. It's supposed to happen.